welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems most often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Morgan Senkow, who is currently a software architect at Metal Toad, a software development agency based in Portland, Oregon, my hometown. Morgan Senkow, glad to have you join us. Hi, Robbie. How you doing? Doing great. So given that you work at a software consultancy, I would love to focus on software within client services, whereas some of my other conversations have been around product companies in particular. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into this because it's kind of aligns with what my company does as well. So first off, how would you typically describe technical debt to a client that doesn't have a strong background in software technology? So I've had several conversations with clients when trying to explain technical debt and its impact. One of the, one of the analogies, I'm, I'm really big on analogies. One of the analogies I've used is, so you're trying to add a new engine into a car that's barreling down the road, down the freeway at like 60 miles an hour and the wheels are falling off and you've got flames coming out, but you're still trying to put a new engine in there. And the downside of technical debt is, you know, things are going to fall apart. You've got to put time and effort into maintaining this thing that you've put sometimes millions of dollars into building or else it's going to it's just going to fall apart and then you're just going to have nothing to show for all that time and effort you've put into it it really just explodes the the amount of effort it takes to put any new features into this system that's a great analogy are there ways that you're able to communicate like some of the the how it's going to cost them maybe in the long run if they're maybe not in the short term thinking about dealing with those issues yeah, I mean, one good way to think about it is that when you first build a build a system, everything runs great, everything works great. Ideally, you've put monitoring in place to monitor the fact that it continues to operate at that high level that you expect. But you really want to plan for continued maintenance and refactoring and addressing of technical debt on an ongoing basis. It's sort of like, you know, house insurance. You know, you pay for that every month. This is like ensuring that your application is going to be well-performing five, even 10, 15 years from now. Sure. Have you noticed any patterns, uh, projects that were previously developed before you come into, maybe even projects that you've also, you've been part of the start through the long-term part of that um, development of that project? Any patterns in terms of what what sort of factors might be leading to maybe a scenario where a, a software code base has too much technical debt? I find that a lot of projects that develop technical debt faster than others are ones that are where they're developed extremely fast. We're like, we need to get from point A to point B in a matter of a couple of months. And we don't have time to deal with any of the quote unquote nice to haves, which is great at the time, but you really need to stop and go back and fix those things. One thing that I often see drops off really quickly is building a comprehensive test framework, a good test to, to test the code that you that you're writing. And then, you know, you go one year, two years, three years down the road and and you're making functional changes to that code and you have no idea what the impact is because you don't have those tests to say, hey, it's really great that you added this feature over here, but this feature actually broke this older this older feature that nobody's looked at in six months. Right. So, you know, in those kind of rapid projects in our industry, we talk a lot about getting that MVP out the door 
Is it those types of scenarios where you often see that like you get the minimum viable thing, but they're trying to test maybe a hypothesis that this is going to be a worthwhile investment long term? So do you feel like it's a good trade off early on or do you feel like companies don't actually end up dealing with that scenario often enough? I've found that it spans the gamut, right? You've got some companies who understand that, like, yeah, we, we, we launched this thing in like three months and it's got a lot of, you know, skeletons in the closet already, but we need to stop and clear out those skeletons before we really go much further. Um, and they'll invest in addressing that technical debt because it's like, if we go back to the tried and true house analogy, you know, it's like building a good foundation for you to, to build this house on the, the first, six months of code that you write is the foundation for the rest of the house that you're going to build on top of it. But then there's some situations where they're like, yeah, we've got our MVP. Now we want to add this and this and this and this and this. And you're like, whoa, we're going to get to that car screaming down the road scenario real fast. We'll figure it out when we get there, right? It yeah, seems to be yeah, a yeah. common thing that at least I've experienced. It's just, well, now it's an MVP 2.0 or something we're working towards. Or we can always come back and rewrite it because it only took us three months the first time. And so it's like, I think you get that idea that, it, well, maybe it's only... You could just replace it in three months, but I don't think that as that never really seems to happen. Typically just keep compiling the problems. How do you typically work with your clients when it comes to prioritizing those lingering issues that kind of collect? One of the things that's worked in the past, once you sort of get them to understand the value of addressing that technical debt is, you know, we'll, we'll work in a fairly agile environment where we've got, you know, two week sprints and, and we're meeting with the client every two weeks to go through backlog grooming and, and prioritization. You know, you've got your, your epics, which are large chunks of functionality. And one of the epics that we'll start as a development team building is a, is a quality epic or a stabilization epic. We'll start adding those tickets in for work that really needs to be focused on addressing the technical debt and removing it. And then always sort of like pushing for pulling in one or two of those tickets in every sprint until you get to like a, a stable situation. Did those like you, you mentioned the use the words quality and stabilization. Do you feel like those were terms that you've seen used a lot in the industry or those things that you've kind of learned that will resonate a bit more with clients? We're like, hey, we're taking care of the quality of the code base or making sure things are stable versus we're dealing with some BS that someone left behind and, you know, we haven't gotten around to touching it in a while or refactoring it or replacing or something like that. Oh yeah. It, a lot of times it's definitely, you use the words that will help the client understand the value. <laughs> quality is always something that you're like, well, we want to ship a quality product for you, right? <laughs> so these are the things that we need to do in order to do that. Do you find much pushback using that kind of language or is it typically... You feel like that's been a, a useful sales tactic, I think, from at least selling your idea or trying to get those things prioritized. And I, I just think that, that that's, that's interesting because I think that it can be, I think that's oftentimes one of the problems that developers deal with is that they don't know how to talk about these things from the client's perspective to get what they want. And I think more often than not, most clients probably aren't saying, just cut a bunch of corners to get this project done. They're probably like, no, we want quality too. Like nobody, nobody says no quality or don't test my thing or what can you fit in the, the timeline? Yeah, I found it to be useful with the clients that I've had to explain this to in the past. Sometimes you do have to turn into a bit of a, a broken record. Like in the case of the situation where you're rushing to get to market, so you're delivering an MVP. After that MVP launch, you're like, okay, so we need to go back and address the shortcuts that we had to take in order to get it to MVP to market in time. We need to go back and address those in the interest of quality and, and building a quality product and a stable platform. 
So just kind of just repeating those things over and over again, it eventually sinks in. I've seen good success with that. That's great. So if we take a quick step back, what types of projects does uh, Meadow Toad typically focus on and what types of projects do you personally get kind of brought in to assist with? Currently, we're focusing a lot on uh, data analytics projects. Uh, a lot of the, I'm not sure if you're asking about Stack, but uh, we do everything from C Sharp to Python, a lot of AWS. We're using AWS a lot. So a lot of Python lambdas and super, super fun stuff to work on. And, and do you typically, are you typically working on existing code bases or kind of building out a lot of new things at this point? Right now, we don't really have a lot of legacy clients. Currently, we're, we're working on a lot of systems that we've started we're pretty greenfield. Uh, we do get, we do still get, occasionally get uh, legacy things coming in, but not at, not currently at the moment. With some of those client projects, do they have their own developers sometimes that you're working with? Occasionally, yeah. They sometimes have like contract or in-house development that we have to coordinate with. Have there been many processes that your team has experimented with, but didn't eventually actually start adopting that maybe you learn from other industry folks? That's a good question. Let me think about that for a moment. I know that we've we've implemented a lot of processes as far as testing and CI/CD go with the express intent to keep the technical debt at a, a manageable level. And those have been pretty successful. We use a, a Codacy for code linting and we've got all of our tests integrated into our CI process so they get run with every build. As an engineer, it really gives you a sense of confidence <laughs> to have that in place, you know, to know that, you know, when you when you ship some code, you're not going to break everything because if it breaks the build, it's breaking the build, you know, on a, on a dev branch that no one's looking at. Do you have a, any examples of projects that I know that right now you're working on a lot of, say, Greenfield type projects or projects that maybe haven't been around for a really long time? Do you recall some stories about where you've come in on some rather older code bases and there's been problems and how you've been able to come in and assist with that problem and how you navigated it? Yeah. So uh, one of the legacy systems that we worked on just had these incredible <laughs> SQL queries with like upwards of like 30 joins in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, somebody really took some time with that. And what we ended up doing is we ended up migrating a lot of that infrastructure into AWS just because the, the code base had become so brittle and so unworkable that the only way that we could make the system address some of the incredible latency that was being caused in part because of these enormous SQL queries was to move it to a, an infrastructure that was really scalable and, and elastic so that we could scale up. RDS instances to handle the load that these queries were putting on them because it was virtually impossible to like refactor them out. It was just so complex of a system and so entangled and such a such a like incredible spider web of of systems that the fastest, easiest, most cost effective way to fix it was to throw infrastructure at it. Hmm. Right. Was that something that you were able to after you helped stabilize the situation? Was there a ways you could start addressing the the way that the software code was written or how the database was structured going long term? Or was that kind of like plan on a rewrite at some point? Yeah, it was it was pretty much plan on a rewrite, which has now been uh, accomplished for the most part. Do you find there's scenarios where 
rewrites maybe aren't appropriate? I mean, I think I think if you have a clear path to getting from where you are to where you want to be with the existing code base, then absolutely you should take a look at trying to do a rewrite. If you can see your way through, right? If you can see your way from where you are right now and like, hey, if we if we shuffle this this code around over to here or extract it out or implement this library, it'll sort of remove a lot of the complexity that it that is sort of getting in our way, then certainly a rewrite would be a refactor would be great. Or if you're just wanting to move to a newer technology that will enable some functionality that you're not able to deal with right now. When you get to the the point of, like in my case, a 15-year-old code base that has, they never deleted anything ever, <laughs> not from the data and not from the code practically. So, so much of it was just abandoned in place. So you could, you know, I, I described the code base once as, you know, that Stephen King movie with that crazy house with like the walls and the doors and the rooms and the, and, and that would just appear and disappear randomly. I don't remember that specific one, but. Well, that's, that's, you know, if you can imagine that, that's kind of what it was like <laughs> to try and na- navigate right. around this code base. It's like, you'd end up at this door and you're like, open the door and it opens to a brick wall. And you're like, what? And then there's a window that appears and disappears. Just that sort of level of craziness. And when you've got a situation like that, you know, just starting over from scratch is going to be your, your best bet. You know, thinking about that, was there that 15-year-old code base that you were working on and were able to move and help you know throw more infrastructure and I'm air quoting hardware at it in, in the cloud. AWS is a hardware. Was there were there was there anyone that around that had worked on originally worked on the code base or were that that like several tiers of groups behind before when you came along? Um yes, there was one person who had been fairly tightly involved for the nearly the entirety of the project. So let's imagine, uh, say, a slightly hypothetical scenario where there's a few, you know, handful of software developers listening to this episode. And they've been at the company for at a company for a number of years now and don't feel like their concerns about the long-term maintainability and health of their code base are being heard by, say, the stakeholders and management within that organization. Perhaps they've tried a few times to advocate for refactoring areas of the code, improving the test suite, upgrading the framework that they're using, but have heard not right now a few too many times and feel like it's no longer worth asking about. What advice might you give them on how to take some action today? You know, if you're really committed to trying to make a change, I would start with the data. Start trying to gather data that will support your claim that the move that you're going to make is going to be beneficial. And data is always somewhat incontrovertible. You know, maybe maybe do a, a couple of, if this is something you could get away with, I would just maybe fork a chunk of the code that you want to refactor and, and do it and show it as an example to your peers. And if you have a tech lead, sort of go over the advantages and disadvantages to doing that refactor sort of as a Proof of concept. I don't think we talk about DX enough, which is, you know, developer experience. If you talk about the reasons and and the difficulties of working in this code base and try and quantify it from a, I mean, even like a human perspective, the dreariness of having to work in this code base is reducing productivity because we hate opening, you know, opening this, this repo. You know, every time I have to do a pull on this repo, I cry a little bit. It's really making my life not happy. You know, just talking about that is really helpful and useful because then if you start talking about it, your your fellow engineers are going to be like, wow, yeah, I totally agree. Maybe we should gather this information and present it to the people in charge. 
and say, hey, we're really unhappy and here's why. Right. And when you touched on data that could be useful in those conversations, do you have some tangible examples of the types of metrics you might be able to pull together typically about a code base? I know there's ways that we can visualize uh, the code base and, and all the different connections that are involved. And if you can, I find that visual reports have a lot of impact. If your code base is very object oriented or, or really sort of fractured and you can get some sort of visual tool that creates a visual representation of that is a pretty powerful thing to do. And then just, you know, the standard performance metrics, you know, latency and throughput and, and all that over time, especially if you can compare it to, you know, a year ago or two years ago and compare that latency and see like a downtrend. That's certainly a good example. Yeah, I think that some of the, the metrics that we've been able to use at times to help with clients or even internally see developers try to use information to help for, like, I don't know if you ever use any tools like Code Climate or some of the tools that kind of analyze the code base and maybe give you some gradings on different areas of complexity in the application. At my company, we, we inherit projects more often than we start new projects. And so it's usually one of the first things we do is we'll run it through some sort of qu- code quality analyzer and kind of give us a report card, which can be kind of collectively on the whole source code, but also kind of drill into specific areas of the, the business logic and be like, okay, yeah, not uncommon to see that some of the most complex areas of the code base tend to be some of the most important yet seemingly brittle as well. So I think that can kind of all connect together like, well... If these couple of files that relate to some business logic with, say, dealing with a third party are being graded like a D or an F by this code analyzer, that can be one way that we've been able to help clients prioritize, you know, improving the quality of the of the code base itself and seeing why that why that why that is important for their the long term investment that they're making too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've uh, we've used uh, some static code analysis tools like Sonar Cube which gives some some good static code analysis. And then for C-sharp projects, there's a ReSharper, which has a whole, a whole stack of little tidbit tools that help you to document and visualize and communicate about technical debt and complexity in a code base. That's great. What do you believe a developer's responsibility is when it comes to the long-term maintainability of a code base? I think you should always be advocating for it because... There's very few cases that I've encountered where you're like, hey, let's build this project and you build it for three months. You're like, okay, that was great. Now let's throw it away and start over. So it's always going to come back to bite you if you don't. One of the things that we talk about at Metal Toad is, you know, who, who is the developer serving and they're serving their future self, <laughs> you know, make your future selves lives good and advocate for, for writing the tests and writing the code in a maintainable way now because your future self will thank you. Have you ever heard a client or any development manager or product owner on a project say, don't write automated tests? Well, I've had a client say that, but none of the other people. And and I I absolutely pushed back on that. I was like, well, we're going to write them anyway. Right. It's it's an interesting thing that, at least in my experience over the years, that and we talk with different companies and they might have their own development team. And then you're finding out like, well, it wasn't a priority to work on tests. There's no, there's no time for them. And then I'm like, well, how do you know that, you know, that the project that you're working on is working? Uh, you know, how do you know you completed the feature or, well, I tested it. I'm like, okay, but you're, are you writing any automated tests? And I feel like sometimes it's usually, there's usually something else going on that I think developers maybe not being honest enough with themselves about that can be part of your process. Like, no one's saying, 
don't write tests. It's not important. I think if you would ask most clients, maybe aside from the one that you had mentioned, that they would typically be in favor of you protecting the long-term basis of the code base if you can if you're efficient with your time when you're doing it. And I think it's one of those things if you get out of practice, then it, it becomes hard to kind of start doing it if you're not already in a good practice of doing it. So it's like kind of making those first steps forward to do that on a regular basis. And then you're that creates a culture, I think, within your team of doing that because everybody else is doing it versus, well, nobody else is doing it. Why should I start? And I think that's a little can be a little misguided. And then and then over time, those developers might start blaming management or some other entity of some sort for why they haven't been able to focus on this. But I think it can be a little hands-off, which is why I was kind of curious about how you thought about what their responsibility is, because you expect like a car mechanic to check, you know, all the things that they're supposed to do when they're remo- make sure they remove all the pieces or think about through their checklist of, uh, as they're doing that, or even, you know, use some house analogies, you know, there's usually things that you expect of someone that you're paying to work on, uh, on your house to do the things that are associated to make sure that they kind of did it properly as well. So. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're hiring people because you, you need to rely on their expertise, right? So if their expertise is around cars, you expect that they're going to go in and fix the thing that you brought your car in for. But if they see other stuff, you're going to expect that they're going to say, hey, by the way, while I was under there, I noticed this, this and this. You might want to deal with it. And then it's up to you to like prioritize that. But you're going to take their advice because they're the, they're, that's why you hire them, because they know better than you. That's true. And then I'm also having these flashbacks to how many times I've gotten my oil changed and being like, I'm not going to deal with those two things right now. I know you can deal with it right now. It'll cost me another $50, but I'm going to wait a little bit on it because I'm a little skeptical or some sort. But maybe that's me just dealing with certain types of oil changing companies. <laughs> but I think it's it's interesting because that's it's it is in a way you're dealing with technical debt in that type of scenario as well. And you know, your mechanical debt, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I would say think about your future self. And do them a favor and write the tests because you'll appreciate it in the future. (laughs) So two last questions before we go. What book do you find yourself recommending to software developers most often? There's there's this one book that I I really enjoyed going through and it's called Seven Languages in Seven Weeks, I think. Or is it Seven Days? Seven Languages in Seven Intervals of Time. And it's a great book if you're wanting to get exposure to a, a bunch of different languages and you don't really want to like go through and, and deal with an entire book on each language, it gives you like a little overview that just gets right to the point, a little bit of code to write, uh, and it gives you exposure to just all sorts of really interesting languages. The one that kind of jumps out for me was Prologue. It was, I mean, it's the language that kind of blew my mind a little bit. It was, it was really fascinating. Um, so that's a book I recommend a lot. Excellent. And I, you know, having not heard of that book specifically, I'm gonna have to check that out. Was it like you, they would give you one example and show you how you kind of approach that in each language or? So they had a format that, uh, there was a format that was adhered to for each language. And it was sort of like, here's an overview. Here's the, the, the basic like syntax that you need to be aware of. Here's how you do a hello world. Here's how you do maybe a slightly, if I recall, it's been a while since I looked at it, but a slightly more involved. It's, I mean, it's really, it was really sort of targeted to people who they know how to code and they just want to get exposure to different languages and really understand the differences between them pretty quick. So it's not, there's not a lot of like talking about, oh, this one's better than the other one or anything like that. It's just, here's the language, here's the syntax, here's an example, here's what you need to know. Next language. <laughs> and there's seven of them. So it's pretty cool. 
I'll definitely make sure I include a link in the in the show notes. And where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at MorganPDX, and you can find me on Facebook at MorganPDX. Pretty much if you just search for MorganPDX, that's me on the internet. All right. Well, excellent. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Morgan. Thanks for joining us on Maintainable. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot.